0: Happy Saturday and season's greetings, everyone. Today's Saturday classic is a Christmas favorite, the World War One Christmas Truce, which took place at various points along the Western Front on Christmas Eve 1914. We still get requests for this one, which was covered by past hosts Sarah and Dublina in 2011, and then in a much shorter episode, so far back in the archive, that Josh Clark of Stuff You Should Know was on this show. That was by Candace and Josh back in 2008. So this classic is the Sarah and Dublina version after the podcast had evolved to be a lot closer to what it is today. So let's just hop right to it. And we hope whatever you celebrate, you have great holidays this year. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And
2: I'm Dablina Chakraborty.
1: And it's December, so tis the season for a holiday podcast special. And I always like to do some kind of episode to mark the season, but I usually try to pick something that's a little bit offbeat. A couple years ago, Katie and I went for a Saturnalia celebration, which was really fun. Imagine frenzied clapping of hands, the king of the beans. Last year, we were kind of offbeat, too, weren't we? We did. We covered that Scrooge-like tale of Oliver
2: Cromwell, he who canceled Christmas.
1: Plus some some um, New England Puritan action too in there. But this year we've chosen something that is a bit more somber, a bit more serious but also in my opinion more moving too. The spontaneous Christmas Eve truce that broke out along the western front during World War I and it of course took place in the first months of a years long war and it was never repeated after the first winter so you really can look at it as an isolated event very early in the war. But as Christmas 1914 approached, many men who had been sniping and shelling each other just hours before set aside their weapons, sang carols together, decorated trees, and traded corned beef and cigarettes for beer and schnapps. It's Kind of a remarkable story. It sounds so unbelievable.
2: In fact, many folks think it's an urban legend. It even has a Snopes entry, if that tells you Let's something. That's
1: real mark of a possible urban legend. Right. Others think...
2: Yes, it's true, but way overblown that only a few soldiers and certainly no officers fraternized on the front. But actually, soldiers of all ranks stationed in sectors across the front called local truces for as little as a few hours or as long as two weeks. So how did a truce like this come about in the first place? How do you walk out into no man's land between the trenches and propose a friendly exchange of schnapps or buttons?
1: How indeed. So... First, a little background on the early months of the war. World War One started in July 1914, and in the first months, the Germans raced through Belgium on their way to France, and they were finally halted in September at the First Battle of the Marne, or I should say slowed down. And this began a stalemate, the real digging in of heels, uh, the trench warfare where victory meant moving your line up just a few yards. You know, the way that we imagine World War One. It's not a war where people are zipping around across Europe really quickly so 475 miles of trenches were established from the North Sea to Switzerland, that was the Western Front, and enemy troops at the front lines were, of course, often very close to each other. I mean, like physically, just a few yards away from each other.
2: So such close quarters created these natural limited truces in some of the quieter spots where each side would tacitly agree not to shoot down opposing rations parties with sniper fire. Since it was early in the war, some still also fought. The idea of fair play, like breaking for breakfast hour, it seemed natural then that if you could break for breakfast, maybe you could also break for Christmas. But that idea was totally unlikely on a high level. Pope Benedict XV's call for Christmas truce was pretty much ignored by political leaders across Europe. Some senior military even preemptively planned against possible white flags flown on Christmas. On December 22, 1914, the First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, messaged the Royal Navy that, quote, any white flag hoisted by a German ship is to be fired on as a matter of principle.
1: They were convinced that the Germans would use the white flag as a trick and didn't want any funny business. I
2: would suspect that, too.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> So you would you would probably not be participating <laughs> Do you think in that the makes Christmas me truth? overly cynical. <laughs> I mean it is war. Maybe just cautious. So for many soldiers too, the idea of marking Christmas in any way during war seemed inconceivable. Even in nineteen fourteen. Uh for instance, German officer Captain Rudolf Binding, who had just come out of the first Battle of Ypres called the massacre of innocents in Germany, due to the huge number of very young, very inexperienced soldiers who were killed there wrote to his father on December 20th of his thoughts on Christmas at the front. He wrote, quote, The simplicity of Christmas with the laughter of children, surprises, the joy of giving little things. This is as it should be when it appears alone. But when it enters the list with a war, it is out of place. Enemy, death, and a Christmas tree. They cannot live so close together.
2: The Kaiser clearly thought otherwise, though. While none of the wartime rulers thought it proper to suspend fighting on Christmas, they did think small gifts for the troops were appropriate. King George V and Queen Mary had cards and tins of extra rations and puddings sent to British troops, for example. And the Kaiser had cigars and tiny Christmas trees shipped to the front lines, complete with ready-to-light
1: candles. I think I'd like a Christmas tree better than a a tinned pudding. <laughs> yeah, that
2: doesn't sound I don't know. too I, appetizing. I mean, I haven't tried
1: one, so what do I know? But it's these barter-ready goods, puddings or cigars, whatever, and the cheery trees and the tendency of both British and German people to sing that started the truth in most sectors where it occurred. Mm-hmm. give you a few accounts of how it went down because of course it is scattered across this huge western front but in one case a British sentry near Leventi, France spotted a group of Saxons on December 23rd and they were up on top of their trench parapet but they didn't look very scary. They were goofing off. One guy was juggling and uh, some of them were waving the Brits over in a friendly way, not like a mocking way. Uh, the British officer in charge thought this was really sketchy, really sketchy, potentially dangerous and warn his troops just basically don't mess with that because inviting them over they might be trying to see what our trenches look like no good again it could be a trick it could be a trick but the next day on Christmas Eve there was ultimately this cautious exchange between The Germans and the Brits of cigars and beer on the German side for cigarettes and corned beef on the British side, which was called bully beef. It was kind of detested by the soldiers even at this point. So they were probably willing to make that trade. And then English newspapers, too, which I think that's interesting that the the German soldiers would be coveting the, the English news. At
2: dusk, the Germans again climbed their parapets, but this time it was two light Christmas trees, and at 11 p.m. they started singing Stille Nacht, which is, of course, Silent Night. Christmas Day, with the mud all covered and hardened by a deep freeze and a sky bright and blue, both sides came out again to exchange gifts, and also, this is what I found surprising, names and addresses, and they promised to write or visit after the war.
1: Some apparently did. I mean, it's years later, but they did maintain those friendships. That relationship.
2: And there was also an impromptu soccer game, which ended with a recorded Saxon victory over the Lancashire Fusilers.
1: So there you go. They were they were trying to enjoy themselves in the middle of this. But across the front, similar episodes played out. Uh, for instance, rifleman Ernest Morley of the 16th Battalion London Regiment wrote how things started in his sector. He said, Quote, We had decided to give the Germans a Christmas present of three carols and five rounds rapid. Accordingly, as soon as night fell, we started and the strains of white shepherds arose upon the air. We finished that and paused preparatory to give the second item on the program. But lo, we heard answering strains arising from their lines. One of them shouted, a Merry Christmas, English. We're not shooting tonight.
2: German Lieutenant Johannes Nieman wrote of the decoration, saying, quote, Our soldiers had hung little Christmas trees covered with candles above the trenches. And British Sergeant A. Lovell wrote, quote, I shall remember to my dying day, right along the whole line were hung paper lanterns and illuminations of every description.
1: And I keep imagining the terrible image you have of World War I trenches with trees that are just completely decimated, villages decimated, mud and bodies everywhere, and little Christmas trees and lanterns strung around. It, it really, um, it paints quite a picture if you try to imagine that. But Private Albert Morin described hearing the Christmas Eve carols as, quote, one of the highlights of my life. So, you can imagine that it did have this really huge effect on these men who had just been seeing carnage day after day or boredom, experiencing boredom to have something so pleasant and so out of the ordinary occur. And, on Christmas Day, the truce continued in many of the places with more games and gift exchanges and singing and combined religious services. And uh, soldiers would swap gear, you know, like switch hats or let me trade for your German coat for my British coat or something and take pictures together, kind of like just dressing up in costumes almost. And there was also, of course, the very somber task of burying the dead, some of whom had been lying out there in no man's land where of course, as the name implies, nobody could go collect them for weeks or even months.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting to note that while the French and Belgians didn't really participate in the Christmas truce in the same way that some British did, they might have had harder feelings against the Germans. Obviously, Some did arrange a temporary Christmas armistice solely for the purpose of burying the dead. So they would carry each other's men's to the middle, exchange and shake hands.
1: So something that was a lot more somber, a lot more official, just Let's agree to take care of this important task and not celebrate.
2: Right. No singing of carols with that. Another truce oddity was the exchange of insignia, buttons, scraps of cloth, and best of all, pickle halves the German dress helmet.
1: So those are the helmets with the little spikes on top and I can imagine why you might want one as a as a souvenir. But there's one story from the London Rifle Brigade written up in a History Today article by John Terrain that tells of a German soldier who had traded away his dress helmet and the day after Christmas he calls out to speak to a British officer and they meet up in no man's land and the German explained that he had traded his helmet the day before And he had a grand inspection the next day, so he really kind of needed to borrow it back. He apparently borrowed it, must have used it for his inspection in a satisfactory manner, and then did return it in exchange for for a little more bully beef because that was hot stuff in the German trenches apparently. Another
2: famous incident has a British soldier recognizing his German barber from London and getting a trim in the middle of no man's land. And that's actually not quite as unlikely as it may sound to some people. Many Germans had worked in pre-war England. So So they might
1: have known each other. And there is another example of a soldier in the British Hampshire Regiment who described the area between the trenches as just a mass of gray and khaki. And those are, of course, the two sides uniforms. And uh, that helped me also imagine what this looked like. I can imagine the Christmas Eve with the lights strung up and the Christmas trees and all of that. But to imagine Christmas Day, just all of the these guys kind of seeing each other for the first time in many cases because they had been fighting trench warfare, fighting at night for so long, a lot of them had never seen the enemy really. And they probably and in in some documented cases did make realizations about each other that, uh, you know, the Germans weren't barbarians, the British weren't these stubborn clods or something, you know, these um Stereotypes? Yeah, stereotypes that they had about the opposing side and that had really been indoctrinated in them, too. Still, though, in a lot of the British letters and diaries that describe the truce, you'll find the British distinguishing between the men that they were fraternizing with. They were Saxons and Bavarians. They were not Prussians. That seemed a very important distinguish for them to make. And I thought it was It was really strange that the German troops themselves even would sometimes disassociate themselves from the Prussians. In one case, there was a member of the Dublin Fusiliers who was killed during the truce by a stray bullet. And that sounds like the kind of thing that would shut down a truce immediately. But the Saxon troops sent over an apology and it said, quote, it must have been one of those damned Prussians exclamation point and followed up the apology with two barrels of beer that was just so surprising to me that a truce could continue and that you would differentiate among your your ranks like that yeah and that the one bullet wouldn't immediately start fighting <laughs> again that the, that the guy's buddies would just kind of get over it or something but um, you can imagine how in some cases incidents like that would definitely bring the truce to an end. And the truces
2: did only last hours in certain sectors, with some troops refusing to participate at all, and others it stretched as long as January 10th. And while the truces were usually arranged by bold or brave bands of soldiers, with officers having nothing else to do but go along with it after their men began pouring into no man's land, sometimes the officers made the arrangements themselves. Captain Robert Hamilton of the 1st Battalion Royal Warwickshire Regiment stationed near St. Yvonne Belgium, met with the German officer halfway through no man's land. They shook hands and arranged a 48-hour truce. In his journal, he talked about doubling midnight sentries just for good measure, but also notes, quote, I am told the general and staff are furious but powerless to stop it.
1: I think you would have been on the Midnight century. You duty. think so? <laughs> <I know. laughs> Probably. Since you're suspicious of this whole thing. But, of course, high-ranking officers on both sides were totally aghast at what was happening. They saw it as simply postponing the conclusion of a war that had already gone on longer than expected. And, for instance, the British General Sir Horace Smith Dorian threatened disciplinary action against any officers who fraternized with the enemy, even though there aren't records of punishments actually being doled out. But by the end of January, um, with the war escalating, of course, the death penalty was announced for what would be considered high treason. So it's not Christmas anymore. It is, um, it's treason against your country. On the German side, officers were threatened, uh, were officers threatened soldiers with a transfer to the Russian front, which does sound like it would make you give up on your button collection pretty quickly.
2: Not that some truce participants didn't skirt authority for as long as they could get away with it, though. British General Sir Henry Rawlison wrote in his diary, quote, A German shouted out to our men, quote, Look out, we have a general coming, so we have to fire at you, but we'll aim high. You do the same for us.
1: I find that pretty pretty remarkable. Yeah,
2: again, the trust here. The
1: the trust and the willingness to just play war, not just like we are openly in defiance of war having this truce, but we're going to just pretend like we're fighting. We won't really try to hurt you. Uh, There's another example of that from Lieutenant Michael Holroyd, who was a British machine gun officer in the 1st Battalion Hampshire Regiment. And he told his parents that around New Year's, when the truce was still going on, the Germans threw up a red light and cried out put your heads down before shelling them after it ended a white light came up and they yelled all right hampshires our officers are gone now so putting putting on a show for the the guys in charge <laughs> Contrary
2: to popular belief, the press also celebrated the truce. News reached England by the new year, and the illustrated London News showed a single Saxon soldier delivering a candlelit tree to the British. It was captioned, the light of peace in the trenches on Christmas Eve.
1: So what was going on here and and what did it mean? I mean, did the truce mean anything coming as it did at the beginning of a very long, very terrible war? I mean, we talked about the chemical warfare pretty recently in an episode. We know how bad it is. And there were many cases of Christmas armistice, but it wasn't everywhere. We should emphasize that point. Some soldiers on the front were shocked to hear of what happened because they spent their night fighting just like they normally did. For instance, Captain J.L. Jack of the First Cameroonians recorded shelling and sniping mixed with a little German caroling, which the British did not respond to.
2: And even the truce that was didn't continue beyond 1914. By 1916, Sergeant P. Hare of the 11th Royal Fusiliers wrote to his mother, quote, There is very little here to remind us of Christmas, just a handful of us remembering that it is December 25th. We are not dispirited, nor do we feel downcast at the fact that we should be spending such a great day like this. It's not a truce, but just some sort of strange understanding between us and the Jerry's on the other side that Christmas Day should be like this. Perhaps next Christmas, the war will be over. He was killed two months later.
1: That's so sad. But even in 1914, it's unlikely that many of the participants really thought that any kind of International peace would come from the truce. Uh, troops on both sides didn't want to lose just for the sake of, you know, just because you were making friends with a guy on the other side, getting his address, trading for his cool looking hat didn't mean that you wanted your country to, to give up or something. Uh, Bruce Biern's father, who is a famous cartoonist and a machine gun officer with, uh, the Captain Hamilton, who we mentioned earlier, the guy who walked out to meet his German counterpart. He saw it as, quote, an interval between the rounds in a friendly boxing match. And I have to imagine that for a lot of guys, it would be like that. Something to, to get away, as we mentioned earlier, from that day to day, really boring and sometimes a really scary existence.
2: Yeah, it's funny to bring up that comparison to sports, though, because that whole exchange of gear thing did make me think a lot of, like, international soccer matches that you watch when afterwards oh. they'll exchange jerseys and the whole playing at fighting That's instead your, of real fighting. your
1: soccer perspective coming in here.
2: Yep. Um But clearly the perception of war was as something so sporting as a boxing match would change. Later, some historians would see it as kind of a bridge between the pre-war and the post-war world. Contributing to the PBS series on the Great War, Paul Fusel describes it as the, quote, last gesture of the 19th century idea that human beings are getting better the longer the human race goes on. Nobody could believe that after the First World War, and certainly not after the second.
1: And to go along with that idea almost, I mean, some people consider it the last holdout of like a Victorian Christmas, and, and that makes sense, or a Dickens Christmas, I mean, kind of the same thing, but that makes sense if you think that the origin of a Victorian Christmas, which is from Britain, is of course German because of, um, Prince Albert, as we've talked right. about all that before too. So it makes sense that these two countries in particular would have such similar Christmas traditions and, and, um, end up celebrating them in this early stage of the war together. But, I was really surprised. I know we've had a lot of quotes in this episode because there are so many letters and diaries written by soldiers. But we do have a quote from our old friend, Arthur Conan Doyle, who is really the new Queen Victoria. He pops up everywhere. He pops up in every episode. <laughs> I really like what, how he described the truce, though it's quite poignant. He wrote, it was, quote, one human episode amid all the atrocities which have stained the memory of the war. Um, and clearly it has been really well remembered and celebrated because it is so unique. It is this one human episode. I mean, if it had ended the war or something, it would clearly be in a, a whole different league of, of history, but, It's so unusual that a lot of people have remembered it and have marked it. In 1999, for existence, members of the Association for Military Remembrance reenact the truce at Ypres. And in November 2005, the last known Christmas truce veteran died in Scotland at a whopping 109 years old.
2: Wow. His name was Alfred Anderson. He was a black watch soldier, and he was 18 in 1914. Later in the war, he had served as a Batman to the brother of the late Queen Mother and consequently had received a visit from Prince Charles and numerous telegrams from the
1: Queen. I feel like we should explain Batman really quickly, too, because because (laughs) Because it's not (laughs) not Batman. The Batman, yeah. Um, I, I found out about this. From watching Downton Abbey, um, it's like the personal assistant almost of high-ranking officers. So the job would be anything from like getting your messages, making sure you had your supplies, to offering some kind of personal protection. And it was a really prestigious position to have. You might get to go to better places and move up faster in the Army. Um, so – that was I was also kind of surprised that this fellow Alfred Anderson um, died in two thousand and five. I believe that the last World War I survivor died just this year, so not too not too far apart, not too far for the last Christmas truce survivor. Um, but one final comment here on Bruce be's father, who we mentioned earlier. I looked at some of his cartoons and I kind of thought they were a neat way to take a different look at. World War I, one that is personal, one that's sometimes humorous instead of remote and upsetting and mechanical. You know, it's it's clearly depicting the soldiers not just as cannon fodder. There are people and they do funny things and they have funny reactions. There were funny interactions with people. But I also liked Bjorn's father's reflection on the truth. And they certainly suggest that he may have seen it as more than just a lull in a friendly boxing match, as we mentioned earlier. He wrote, quote, there was a kind of invisible, intangible feeling extending across the frozen swamp between the two lines, which said, this is Christmas Eve for both of us, something in common.
2: Well, that was a great choice for a Christmas episode, I think.
1: Well, I'm glad that you liked it and I really enjoyed listening to it. It made me break out my um, family Carol's book. Kind of put me in a in a Christmas mood, but a reflective one too.
2: And I know that there are a lot of other Christmas themed episodes that people want to hear. I think people request St. Nick every single year. People do. We get a lot of requests for St. Nick, so maybe that'll be next year's episode. Maybe. But in the meantime, if you have any more requests, Christmas-related or not, please email us. We're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also hit us up on Facebook or on Twitter at Missed in History.
1: And, of course, have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy New Year. Festivus. Festivus. Saturnalia, of course. Christ Tide. If you listen into our old episodes, you will know both of those references. Whatever holiday you celebrate, I hope you have a happy and peaceful season. You can also learn more about Christmas as well as the Christmas truce. We do have an article on that. I found it unfortunately after I was done (laughs) researching this episode because I'm rarely expecting we have uncovered history articles anymore. We usually don't. We usually don't, but we do have one for this. It's called What Was the Christmas Truths? And we have How Christmas Works, which I always like to recommend. You can check it out by searching for Christmas on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.